people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hi, and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. Uh, this is a podcast about the far right and anti-fascism and fascism. Um, and today I'm joined by Michael Richmond and Alex Stanley, um, who are authors of a new book, um, Fractured, Class, Gender and Hatred of Identity Politics. And we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about um, kind of reactionary forms of identity politics and how they operate in uh, the world today and also how they operated historically. Uh, welcome, Buff. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, so actually in a quite recent episode, I, I kind of ended up commenting on identity politics or the reactionary form of it that we're going to discuss. Um, you know, and I kind of said that there's all these different terms that sprung up in like the last few decades. You know, political correctness is probably one of the earlier examples of it being weaponized in the, in the mass media form. Um, but also there's workness, um, identity politics itself, critical race theory, and you brought some in your book like gender ideology um, as another one. And I kind of commented that all these terms, you know, kind of fulfill the same function. Um, for you, how do these terms operate when they're used in this kind of reactionary way? And how do you distinguish between them? Because they're a kind of rotating cast of, of different things. Yeah. I think, you know, at the beginning of the book, we, um, we listed sort of a load of these sort of floating terms that have, like you say, they've kind of emerged and sort of metastasized through different levels of discourse over the last few years or even decades. Um, so obviously our, our focus is, is mostly on identity politics, but um, we knew it was important to kind of name these other terms because of all these connections that you're you're talking about um we know sort of with regard to words like woke and cancel uh, or concepts like critical race theory and identity politics that these are all terms which basically emerged through you know african-american vernacular um or they're like terms or concepts that derive from from sort of varied like black struggles against white supremacy from black modes of organizing. So even, even just a term like cancel is just like grown out of like black online spaces and then gets kind of, like you say, kind of loaded into this kind of um, culture and kind of blasted into the, into a more mainstream discourse. So what we, the way that we talk about these terms is, so the, the meanings of the terms are um, are changed. They're, they're kind of either directly or they're gradually appropriated. And you get these kind of scale jumps where like internal debates within particular communities or, or intra-left debates in, in particular kind of leftist spaces then eventually get appropriated into the mainstream or, or sort of reformulated into attacks. We, we try to be careful in the book not to kind of collapse the meanings of the different terms because they have different origins and sometimes have sort of different nuances to them. Um, but the, the kind of sameness effect is, is mostly achieved by the appropriations themselves. So the, the terms get used almost interchangeably. So 
things like you hear things like woke identity politics nowadays is is a kind of common refrain things like political correctness or the loony loony left or um or even just a term like anti-racism were these were like common attack lines in britain in the 1980s for tories and newspapers and the labor right and they kind of operated in similar ways to how wokeness does today and to an extent identity politics i think we mentioned in the book that you know the kind of white supremacist specter that gets raised around the term social equality in um, in the u.s under jim crow um is used really effectively to kind of bolster and kind of or you know co-produce american anti-communism it's this thing that's like referred to in terms of um white often jewish radicals being behind black organizing or black struggle or black radicalism um and it this kind of helped produce the figure of the the outside agitator which um you know which remains pretty potent i mean every time there's an uprising in in the US, um, the, the the news are constantly banging on about outside agitators, as if um, people, black people aren't struggling for themselves. Um, I think, you know, in a lot of these instances, these the kind of reactionary discourses jumping off these terms are trying to kind of ridicule and, and undermine solidarity. They're a kind of you know, there are attempts by differently exploited and oppressed people to come together. And these, these are terms that say, isn't that, isn't that a kind of ridiculous thing? Um, you know, and so it's kind of like how people talk about virtue, virtue signalers today. It's like the right talks about virtue signalers to suggest that maybe, you know, someone can't actually stand for something out of their own beliefs or or out of solidarity with others, but it always has to be kind of acting in in their own interests or, or doing it for show or something like that. The the idea of the white knight as well. Yeah, one. exactly. Yeah, that's true. And I think the uh, I think as well. I mean, like Mike was saying, a lot of historical nuances around the words we leave for the chapters, if you like, to kind of explore. Um, and in the introduction, we kind of focus on a lot of the leftist debate or a kind of orthodox use of um, identity politics on the socialist left as well. And the way it's kind of been used as like a periodizing function um, around neoliberalism. So you you hear about neoliberalism and identity politics kind of, um, they kind of coincide really. And it's kind of this idea that identity politics grew out of a kind of a neoliberal recuperation of post-68 struggles that this kind of incorporative gesture, gesture almost kind of turned into a form of governance. Um, so all the phoniness we see in kind of, uh, you know, in, in a liberal democratic culture around the Democrats or something, it's very kind of inspired around that. But you see, you know, and I suppose one of the things we're kind of trying to push at here is that um, sloppy at best, and sometimes that operates as a reactionary left discourse as well, and it can do... It can operate as a chauvinist discourse in different spaces. So not just socialists, but also some anarchist circles who will blame identity politics for weakening anarchist class politics of the past. Or in liberal and centrist um, circles, gender ideology serves the same purpose, pitches a kind of a malevolent break with a kind of coherent women's unity. And so nostalgia 
kind of like forms around a past universalism or around different kind of movements. I mean, this is a thing. I mean, like, you know, the problem of representations central to all movements and it impacts them all as does incorporation, but identity politics has a more schematic kind of function. Um, it means a whole kind of culture, if you like, a kind of pathology even um, of a, a way of doing politics that's kind of often preserving the moral stature of a kind of a universalist idea around laborism or the moral character of the working class, um, you know, class politics that become kind of imbued with uh, a kind of a better time, really, a better time before neoliberal broke with them. And um, rather than a lot of this class politics being subject to internal challenges, which is what we argue in the book, really, is that um, there's never been a kind of united working class and there's always been a problem of incorporation, but it has to be kind of historically situated. Uh, how do you think it's best to distinguish between like a kind of a right, a right critique of this use of identity? And I'm thinking probably the really obvious example that everyone's seen of this advert for the CIA where some yeah. woman walks down the yeah. hallway going, I am a, I've got a generalised anxiety disorder, I'm black, I'm a lesbian, yeah. I'm a woman, mm. I'm a CIA agent, which is obviously a kind of very crude cover for <laughs> yeah. one of the worst organisations in the world. <laughs> yeah. um, and this kind of, um, this, this tendency you were getting out, especially on the left, of like, Oh, if only we didn't have um, all these black people um, causing trouble in our trade union movement, for example, or, you know, whatever, our, our, our class struggle, um, um, we would have a kind of socialist situation now. I think, and so how do we, like, be kind of laser focused in that distinction? I, I think... Because the reason that, sorry, the reason I'm asking is that it's really easy to meld these two things and suddenly you're... A reactionary too, you know. No, I think that's the, I think that's the issue. I think it's easy to kind of see image images appear like that CIA, you know, and, and become like there you go. There's another example, you know. There's that there's another example of this form of identity we keep talking about. So it's very easy to kind of affirm the idea as you know certain theories like Adolf from Adolf Reed to others have done that you know this is a neoliberal kind of thing you know this is a recent novel thing and neoliberalism is using these struggles in some way well well yes it is but it doesn't you know kind of uh, it doesn't kind of affect really the fact that the struggles come from somewhere the anti-racist struggles come from somewhere and they carry on and continue and develop in their own right um and what you kind of get is a conspiratorial notion and that you know well um actually by participating in an anti-racist movement um, or by participating in what's, you know, what someone like Reed would call a kind of a, a racist ideology of anti-racism, you are in some way propping up kind of a neoliberal form of governance, which is just, you know, it's, I mean, it's absurd in its own right, but it still maintains a lot of traction um, because people become over-focused on the imagery of a Clinton speech or a, a CIA advert. And uh, then that kind of tracks over to other people like um, Glenn Grenwald, you know, and people like that who then, you know, kind of share this. Well, there you go. Here's another example of a, who, who kind of harden it, you know, crystallizes in really conspiratorial kind of, um, kind of narratives around identity politics. So I think what we're trying to do in the introduction really is first of all, just set that out and kind of show some of the contradictions in that. I think I think also with something like the um, the CIA advert, 
like that's that's trying to appeal to something that's been that's been a popular trend in the mainstream it's kind of like you know the the increase in the number of you know racialized people in adverts and commercials and how that how that basically you get this kind of undercurrent or not even much of an undercurrent you get like people kind of frothing about it on message boards and social media about how like you know this is you know it's a kind of like a without even saying the terms it's kind of complaining about white genocide and taking away our culture and stuff like that when when actually it's kind of you know people working in television or media kind of reacting to trends in like what they think is like what they think is like cool or what they think are good hiring practices but like you know and and in the cia advert it's it's something like that but it's also the state trying to recruit people from from untapped parts of the population and it speaks to the fact that in the, the united states in the last 50 years if you if you look at the stru- the black power struggles in the 60s and 70s you know part of what's happening in those struggles is that a huge proportion of black americans have like zero representation in congress aren't like are like subject to like huge discrimination in all kind of professions and hiring practices and stuff like that and because of the a mixture of militant struggles and incorporation and kind of recuperation um, things that are, that happen in the course of struggles going up and down over the last fifty years, you now have a different a different reality where you do have racialized people who are mayors and police chiefs and police officers and these kind of things and and I think sometimes that reality is like part of people's confusion about how to to talk about these things but like you know were people have were people interested in cia adverts when they were only appealing to like old white men or young white men no i mean that that wasn't controversial so it's like based on this assumption that that racialized people should be radical or shouldn't be doing or shouldn't be in the, these kinds of jobs so it's a kind of slightly a double standard that you get sometimes including from the white left you know in in the 70s and 80s during quite a lot of um you know black and asian struggles in britain you had some white left critiques of the involvement of petty bourgeoisie black and asian people involved in in community struggles you know like involved it it involved these kind of cross-class coalitions whereas when people are critiquing the struggles of like past struggles of of majority white labor movements these these kinds of cross-class things are happening all the time throughout history and they and they exist in people's kind of kind of common imaginaries of what the what the white working class is or how that how that phrase has kind of um ch- changed over the years the, the book's called fractured and you write in the introduction again we can understand more concretely how liberal societies are constituted by fracture Polarisation is nothing new. On the contrary, it is the point. How have and you know? I think a lot of this book is an attempt to historic, historic, give some history past beyond this kind of point of like neoliberal identity, whatever. Move 
show that these things are, are not a new phenomenon at all. And it's a really interesting method in, um, of the book in which you present some kind of um, problem or issue at the start of the chapter and then, you know, go into a very kind of uh, elaborated example from history, you know, historicizing these 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 arguments and these debates. Um, um, for you, how have these kind of liberal, fractures in liberal society operated historically? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we chose to take an hi historical approach because we, we find that the, the claim that identity politics is this kind of politics of of divisiveness or or even one of kind of a kind of conspiratorial wrecking which which comes up a lot as well it, it this kind of these claims require there to have been this kind of sort of fabled history of like unity and and universalism uh, for 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 that for that unity or universalism to have been divided or wrecked so our our argument is that this kind of discourse has appealed to, to people across different traditions to explain divisions, to explain political failures, whether that's, you know, the division of the, the dividing of the nation or the dividing of womanhood or the wrecking of democracy or the splitting of the class. You know, we try to show in some of these kind of deep dives into like 19th and 20th century history or sometimes venturing even further back. We try and show what 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 kinds of prior relations, what kinds of, um, you know, longer, longer form contradictions have constituted some of the, the kind of iconic movements and and the, the moments of struggle in um, in British and US histories and, and in the, the colonial context of those states. So so you know some examples in, are that in in movements for women's suffrage, we see how race and class were dividing lines of fracture that, that you know when there was growing struggles against patriarchy, um, the there was this, constant sort of these constant kind of divisions and barriers and erasures of movements unable to kind of compose themselves um, for the freedom of of all women um, and, and we saw how some of the suffrage demands that were kind of imposed by movements on on a kind of dem democratizing um, liberal state helped to fracture mass movements um, so like differently categorized groups. So we use the example in, in the, during the US Civil War and in its aftermath, how the movements of women's suffrage and of the, the kind of self-emancipation of the slaves and, and black freedom movements that are, that are so kind of defining of, of that moment of rupture, that they try to kind of form alliances and try to sort of see each other across divides and 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 try to work together um but we also find that as they kind of get closer to to the state and the state's power to categorize and the state's power to you know make law that that different different differentiated groups end up fighting each other over you know who gets to be enfranchised or who gets to be who gets to be enfranchised first um you know in some of the other chapters we 
we um, see how sort of during high high periods of of working class militancy. So, for example, in in Britain's late nineteenth century, when the, with the rise of of new unionism or um, the rise of like white working men and labor unions in the American West, these kind of this these reconstitutions or consolidations of of labor movement strength often come through the formation of nationalized worker identities. So in both these contexts, there's overwhelming labor movement support for the introduction of immigration controls against working class Jews in Britain and against Chinese immigrants in the Pacific West. So we see how the power of the capitalist state often supported from from many in, in organized labor in the imperial core is able to begin constructing an architecture that divides and fractures the working class to to kind of constitute differentiation in a way that some of the kind of anti-ID poll leftists today just treat as natural. Is is this kind of, sorry, this reading of history is really important, isn't it? Because um, I feel like some of our enemies, yeah, some of our enemies are, you know, they, they read history as a unified history of working class struggle um, and then there are these forces coming in that disrupt it without seeing that the working class is very uh, is you know complex and diverse and has all these internal contradictions too and how we navigate that is how we build a an actual movement against you know capitalism yeah definitely i think yeah i mean this is what we're always struggling with in in uh, this and i suppose one of the problems of writing a book like that like the method of doing it where we take a contemporary example it we don't want to suggest that in a sense um we're making analogies to the contemporary we're just tracing a problem and seeing that problem emerge in its repetition and um so i suppose kind of historically speaking you know i suppose what as i said before sometimes you know uh what some of the narratives of uh while we had something unified and there's rupture it has to have an idea of a coherent basis before we want to trouble that really um not in a contrarian way but to kind of actually understand what the political legacies of division are you know and like what you know what our, how our, how our movements struggle to compose our alliances unlikely alliances um kind of came together and were blown apart and i think there's lots of lessons for us to be kind of like conscious of that really and just kind of look at it and go well you know we can shed a little bit more light if it might said this before you can shed a little bit more light than heat on the problem of division when you historicize it that way. And I think important to that is not to get too caught up in origin stories, uh, um, not get too caught up in ideas of historical breaks, that something like breaks and it kind of moves on. Because what you find uh, historically is that although we'd all agree here, I think there's been a configuration around neoliberalism and there's all there's kind of that needs to be explored. There's lots of continuity. Um, and what tends to happen is the state can react violently or progressively but the state always reacts in a way and something gets formed through that reaction. And that can be, a, you know, that reform can be just a new kind of consolidation of a previous violence. It's not to say that the violence is, you know, of uh, the 19th century, the same as they are today, but there are, there are links there, there are connections and there's consolidations and they need exploring. I think what we, what we get if we take a kind of a break kind of idea is that all that matters now is neoliberalism to explore all that matters is in the 50 years um since the, and often this gets pegged back since the workers movement was kind of defeated 
and um, you know that's it's been it's something that we need to trouble a lot all the time really partly because you just stop thinking you stop thinking a kind of about actually why are why are these things repeating why why were these things never addressed you know why are movements weak you know what were those weak points so certainly I think um, that's been that's been the big motivation for us really from the start and also it may, it, it it forces you to think about who who didn't do well in the post-war consensus as well because because that 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 historical break that periodizing is always based on this on this assumption that everything's got worse in the last 50 years because everything was better for everyone between like 1945 and 1973 and and you know if you look at some people like Robbie Shilliam's book is really good on this, which basically says like, well, look, I mean, the the high the super exploitation of of migrant workers in Britain forms the the basis for the building of that welfare state that that is the kind of um, you know is the kind of proudest um, achievement of that of that you know, the, that Labour government and that, that post-war era. Um, but the, the conditions that, that kind of, the kind of working conditions that characterise the, the, the neoliberal turn, that kind of further precarization, that, you know, um, inability to kind of um, sort of secure regular work that was the normal experience of most migrant workers in britain before way before thatcher um throughout that period and it just became a more generalized condition afterwards um and just to and just to add to that you know we do cover this in in one of the chapters is that one of the hindsight kind of like weird distortions of that is oh well everything was kind of regulated and there was a bit of order around it was an organized working class, it was all around the welfare state, you know, and it, it, this was kind of universal and everyone's brought together around that. Um, but actually immigration since the neoliberal period has just gone, has gone amok and it's fragmented all of it. So you get this weird kind of twisting that you've got a kind of a racial, a specific kind of particular racialized regime around immigration, around the post-war state, um, you know, that Savannah then kind of refers to as like a, almost kind of a free market model. You know, people are just allowed to come in and then take kind of roles it wasn't like as massively organized as you'd uh you kind of suspect by the way people talk about it and now suddenly we've got open borders everywhere you know when you've got a neoliberal regime which is high technology uh which works in kind of integration a new kind of intensity with loads of other states and it's nationalized at a different level so you get like weird twists i think around like what how do we lose it you know how do we lose this welfare state you know well the story is immigration or the story is fragmentation of the working class or some kind of some kind of like a latent suggestion to that um so you know i think it put when you historicize it it puts it in its place really um that not only there was a no ideal post-war settlement um but a lot of the lessons the state learned in that period were developed and kind of progressed if you like into the neoliberal phase a theme of this podcast has been the relationship between anti-racism and anti-fascism. And 
This has been something I've thought about on and off since about 2013, when a long-standing anti-fascist activist said to me, you know, we have anti-fascism, which is direct struggle against fascism in society, and anti-racism, which is struggle against state structures, prisons, uh, policing, immigration. And these are two separate politics, and we should treat them separately. And, you know, because they're, they're different methods and they're different... Um, they're different things and we should treat them, treat them differently. And I believed that view for a long time. Um, and I've we, obviously I, I came to uh, having, you know, read various writers and, and had conversations and also been involved in various struggles in which these, in, these things started to come together much more clearly. Um, I started to question this. And in our book, our first book, we kind of describe anti-fascism as having a junior role to anti-race, broader anti-racist struggles. But I actually think it's further than that now, you know. These things are enmeshed and utterly kind of completely uh, un inseparable, you know. Um, for you, how does how does the relationship between the two play out? Um, and in what ways has some kinds of anti-fascism failed to, you know, account for anti-racism or anti-racist politics? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I've I've been a listener to your podcast since the very beginning, so I've I've enjoyed your kind of your uh, journey of thinking thinking through the relationship of anti-racism and anti-fascism because I've been doing it along with you, I'm sure. But I think in the book, you know, the book we focus obviously much more on racism than we do on fascism on the whole. Um, but but like you say, there's there's so much overlap. Um, I guess because we deal with white supremacy historically um, and, sh and sort of we understand it as being kind of fundamentally imbricated in, in colonialism over the long durée, the, the book touches on some of these kind of long-standing anti-racist critiques on, of anti-fascism. Of anti so, you know, the, the idea that that many modes of anti-fascism in the past have failed to, to view fascism, the, the place of fascism in the longer work of race um, and have in t at times failed to confront the racism of the state, um, sort of world historical racism, if you like, that Sivan and Dan would call uh, the breeding ground of street fascisms. Um, so why we can say that fascisms are like different from liberal state racisms um, and can require different kinds of opposition. I think a, a closer focus on race and colonialism can show that the street fascist is far less, you know, extreme than, than liberals want to claim or that, that, those, that those forces are closer historically, ideologically. So th none of this is to say that, you know, anti-fascists are in some way uniform um, or that, that anti-fascism today ten all tends towards sort of, um, you know, a kind of democratic form or a kind of popular front type coalition. Um, or that anti-fascists, which of course we all are, um, are unaware of these things. Um, it's more just that these are part of the, the traditions and the past failings of anti-fascism in, 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 in certain 
um, times and places that kind of that can weigh on us that that we that we know that we know it's a necessary but inadequate um, form of struggle that as long as as long as you you know organize to fight against um, sort of fascist fringes you will continue to still face racist states as long as as long as they exist um yeah and i think just to add to that i mean referring to um a past episode i think it's episode 69 where you talked about that uh, and you had a debate around this and you know i agree with what you were saying alex about differentiation i think there is an there is an anti-fascist specialism if you like there's important kind of focus strategies for certain groups that are active at the present time um anti-fascist researchers looking you, you know you find now i mean we refer to mallory moore in um uh, one of the chapters who's looking uh, and follow her work about um gender critical transphobia and the way that's made inroads with the far right you know you see kind of american specialists in uh, fascism who will be like hang on you know i see some link here between uh kind of transphobia and the far right and you know and you know anti-fascists are on this first because there's a kind of uh, mapping of the problem so there is something like really important about that but i mean at the same you know i wouldn't split it pair it off as then the anti-racist work goes this way but there are different um abolition work anti-raids work this kind of uh, stuff has its own strategies, has its own needs and necessities, but you still need to be aware also of like where the anti-fascists are because they've got, you know, kind of um, some agency as well. So I think there's, um, uh, like you said in the beginning, really, I think these comes together. It's like how it comes together. It doesn't mean need to mean one and the same thing and different practices will be required, but certainly it's good and it's like really good that... Um, all of us are becoming more aware of all these different strands and histories and activities, really, in anti-racism and and the problems within them. It's not like anti, within anti-racism, there's no uh, no issues with kind of forms of anti-racism. So, um, so yeah, I think that's you know for me that's a really hopeful thing that um, people are becoming more literate, are kind of around this this stuff. Also, like, you know, it's a lot of the time the same people are involved in both. <laughs> like, it's not this, the idea that you can separate these things is like this weird kind of thing that we're, we're doing when we're having these kind of like theory battles. But like on the ground, like, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of the time that I've been active in stuff, there's not that many people that you can have like this really healthy anti-racist mo- movements and really healthy anti-fascist movements when no one's in 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 both of them like you know there, there, there there's so much overlap and i think some of the some of the best critiques of of anti-fascism in the 70s and 80s coming from people like gilroy and sivan and dan and stuff like that is is where you're you are talking about um a society where like a, a much more um, segregated society than than we have now. Like you, you, you have anti-racist movements that are almost completely kind of black and Asian 
um, and community based and and community organizing based. And then you had, you know, most most of the critiques are of the kind of anti-Nazi league type stuff, um, which you know is those are things that we can still a lot of that that stuff is stuff that we can still see now in in sections of you know kind of trotskyist groups and and some forms of kind of anti-fascist sort of front groups but it's that's not translatable to to what's happening on the ground today i don't think um i mean in, in in the book we try to um do you know i think i think in in the podcast you've always been really good at kind of showing the kind of complexities of the far right um showing like showing its varied kind of like social compositions and and ideological kind of ticks and and the fact that not everything is 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 fascism and and that that's not always like the most important thing in the world um, to decide. And I think in the book, you know, as because we're covering some like kind of reactionary tendencies within within kind of traditionally thought of as progressive movements, that that's kind of where some of this stuff comes up for us. So like, you know, if you look in the 1930s, if you look at like the kind of membership roles of the, the British Union of Fascists, you know, whilst you have some kind of stray kind of leftists and even suffragettes and, you know, Mosley was a Labour MP or whatnot, you know, the vast majority of, of people that kind of move into organised fascism are people who've come from the right, come from the Conservative Party. Um, you know, there's a, like a long tradition of, of, you know, the aristocracy and the military in Britain and colonial elites um, kind of affiliating to, to early fascist movements. But we also show in the book, you know, that during, during the first world war, um, a lot of people with long associations on the left at the center of the left turn towards a kind of proto-fascist politics. So, you know, you get these kind of patriotic labor tendencies during the kind of fervor of, of war where they kind of take to a kind of hardened, you know, racialized anti-Semitism, where they're involved in organized street violence against striking workers um, and against anti-war leftists. So, you know, like nowadays, if um, if we look at someone like, you know, like Paul Embury, who obviously was a was a trade union le- leader. A lot of people on the left want to talk, would want to look at a figure like that and say this person is an anomaly, or um, or that he was never on the left anyway, or something like that. But I think you know part of part of our project is to say, well, look, you know, a lot of those kind of patriotic Labour factions um, were later absorbed into the Labour Party. Their, their racism and nationalism, their support for the war, these were shared by many, many of their con- comrades at the time. Um, and, and this is the kind of, this is the Labour Party that so many Corbynites during the kind of 20, 
17, 18, 19 years were saying the Labour Party has always been an anti-racist party, has always been an anti-racist party, these kind of things. Like those are just kind of latent. Those that, that those things are just kind of part of the makeup of Labourism. I suppose this linkage between anti-racism and anti-fascism in most recent times um, has for me, become more, most obvious in the in the struggles around in 2020, around the following the murder of uh, George Floyd in America, and the subsequent like upsurge in um, yeah, I suppose insurrectionary activity that started to question great kind of foundational myths of 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 nations of the United States of of the UK, and and, and more importantly, the kind of physically embodied resistance to that in the tearing down of public monuments and the taking to the streets in, 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 in vast numbers. Um, and I think what that kind of, and of course in the UK, this, this culminated around the, the pulling down of, the joyous pulling down of the statue of slave trader Edward Colston and, and dumping him in, in the docks and graffitiing him and whatever. And the subsequent reaction with that was, was really interesting to me. We, we did a whole episode at a time on the statue defenders. And it kind of betrayed a, like a real kind of fragility in Britain's national story that maybe had been there for a long time. Um, I think probably was there for a long time in that people, and it wasn't just um, the kind of the latent EDL and Tommy Robinson guys who were displaying this. It was across the kind of national columns and in newspapers, on TV, um, in kind of households up and down the country. Um, that Britain was a good, Britain ended the slave trade, Britain, you know, um, was a force for progressive change in the world. Um, how do you analyse how these, how that kind of particular cycle of struggle uh, played out? I think similar to that, really, yeah. It, it does become really confused because on the one hand, you know, as I understood this question originally when we were looking through them, you've got anti-racist and, you know, very broad popular kind of like demonstration people putting their bodies onto the streets um and encompassing lots of people who wouldn't really be before involved in kind of things like that or any kind of direct action activity as well and um who then as you get the reaction become almost de facto anti-fascist um because they're facing up against people and this is all around the country as well so all small communities small towns you're facing up against the local far right guy but also just random characters liberals you know kind of congregating in squares so i think what we try to focus on in the book is that although if, if you looked at it just from a, as a kind of media spectacle you, you'd see the trafalgar square which is the, the kind of largest of all but bristol's obviously really interesting one because of colston it's such an electric kind of uh, international kind of direct action kind of illumination um that um when you see the composition of the statue defenders they're organizing around quite conventional liberal arguments you know really that um that uh, you know that what to add to the confusion to represent themselves or kind of rather imbue within their discourses an image of the british state as anti-fascist so as the last defense against encroachment from a kind of totalitarian tendency on the left and you had to quite softly spoken characters you know say well you know 
protest, you know, here, fine to have a protest, but, you know, that's because Britain gave you the right to have a protest, you know, kind of <laughs> these kind of things. And then kind of hand in hand with people who are just more far, more far right elements, it kind of masks that a little bit um, kind of around <clears throat> some of these kind of liberal rhetorics. And it relied on the war monuments, uh, you know, as the kind of recoil, if you like, into the past, which was we defeated fascism then and we must do so again, you know, that um, our cultural heritage is being teared down by new totalitarian force. Um, and we really focus on this because, you know, as we said, we think it's important to unpick the kind of shared lexicon between the most conventional discourses of liberalism and the far right um, as they relate to the distant past, but also more recently. Um, with post-Blairite discourses of failed multiculturalism, um, you know, I think there's lots of misunderstanding around the Blair era, that it was kind of socially liberal in some sense. I think that's kind of an American import from, you know, some of the identity politics rhetorics around American liberalism, you know, kind of the idea that um, everything got more progressive. And in Britain, um, Blair, you know, kind of developed a lot of the rhetorics that we saw that that were on that as statue defenders. You know, there was a kind of like weird compositions. We followed a, a, a Bristol Caver reporter who kind of documented it all. Priyanka um, Raval. Priyanka Raval, yeah. And, you know, she was, it's quite brave really, but she's kind of, she's kind of like, yeah, like really represented one, the mix, the composition, but also the fickleness, you know, the kind of reflex from, well, we're here to protect this cultural heritage, which is democratic and anti-fascist. And it's anti-fascist because we won the war and it's anti-racist because, uh, you know, we abolished slavery and, you know, you're only here because uh, of all of this, you know, and then it starts kind of recalling to that. And, um, you know, and there was, it's, it's kind of like she, her kind of safety and also her citizenship kind of conditional on the fact that um, we are tolerating you know, kind of you being here and we're a tolerant society. So there's really, as you say, you know, the fragility, the fragility of this national story and the way it kind of like, you know, it kind of reared up um, around this event. We just wanted to like focus on that and contextualize that because I think that we're still left with a lot of the remnants of it. Um, and I think, oh yeah, and on the cycle of struggle question. Yeah, I mean... You know, yeah, just to kind of say that, because I think that was part of the question originally, you know, how you analyse how the, you know, the particular cycle of struggle worked out. Um, I think we focus on the historical reaction to black-led uprisings and how that, you know, might steer critical viewpoints going forward. I think what we had then uh, in B after BLM 2020 is the recruitment of reactionary people into prominent roles who were also racialized into positions of power. So Kemi Badenoch, who led the war against woke, um, and who has kind of a future career as educational secretary, potentially. And, you know, in her view, what was systematic? Stuella Braverman's going to be home secretary. Yeah, I know. It's really, yes, yeah. It's fucking awful. It's, awful. it's, it's not just, yeah. all, it's just the thought of just, she'll want to get one up on her predecessor as well, which is just like terrifying. Like, li that's literally what I thought too. Yeah. It's like, I've got it's to just, go hard. Got, yeah. I've got like this window before Keir Starmer gets in. Yeah. Go hard. Yeah. So you got that. So, you know, I think I think pretty pretty Patel's going to be head execution. Yeah, is that right? yeah, yeah. It's well, just... she'll really enjoy herself. So good for yeah. her. So it's that I think. I think yeah, it's you know, it's to it's to really get into the grain of that. So we remember it as well. Do you know what I mean? I think it's kind of such a messy period, and 
any moment like that, any kind of rupture or upsurge, it's very messy. And it's good to kind of get in the grain of that a little bit and remember it and put it down because these characters move on, you know, and they are moving on. Um, and it's really important. One of the main things for us is not to anchor this into a kind of culture war frame that somehow, you know, these characters perform some like a mere distraction for a more material reality, you know, that, and there are kind of novel developments in the last 30 years or so, you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, this is a trace to how recruitment of racialized people into actual roles has formed over hundreds of years. And it's the British state doing what the British state does. This, you know, this is what it's done. There's various examples of it. I think, uh, I mean, that's how we kind of looked at it, Mike, really, didn't we? You see, to kind of to give a con contemporary scene like that and then just give more historical examples to kind of deepen, you know, uh, what the what the trace is there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of focus on the fact that, you know, you have um, racialized people in higher positions in, in the conservative government in the last few years. And that's obviously because that is something new um, that, that like there were, a, I think there were a bunch of assumptions that, um, that sort of representation, like sort of representation politics were, were only really tied to, you know, the Labour Party or in, in, in the US, the Democratic Party, um, because that there were, kind of avenues from different forms of kind of community organizing and different kinds of struggles in into the the grassroots of those parties and that and they're basically like traditional sort of the traditional racism of the right wouldn't wouldn't allow for those kinds of forms of representation so that so on the one hand yes it's it's something that's that's quite new and quite um remarked upon and and but i think on the other hand it it can be overplayed um you know if you look at how the british empire used kind of um leaders in different parts of the world or different kind of substrata of classes in different parts of the world in in, in forms of social control it's, it's it's not new as a as a British state logic, and and we we cover some of this in in terms of like how the British state tries to manage kind of the quote unquote Jewish community in in the kind of late nineteenth early twentieth century, and and it manages it again through these these class divisions and class strata and different kind of. Um, you know, ethnic divisions and religious divisions. Um, and I think, you know, I think a, a part of, of the way that we looked, try to look at the, the kind of the site, how the 2020 cycle of struggle played out was, was not necessarily to kind of try and find some kind of historical parallel of like, you know, what can we, you know, what can we compare this kind of street movement to, to like learn how to, how to succeed better or whatever it's, but more to, to look at how this, how the British state reacts to black led uprisings. And, you know, there are, there's very 
in in the post-war era there's different you have black-led uprisings or um you know aut- autonomous uprisings by racialized people in britain um that have that come of diff- with different character different characters so you have for example the notting hill and nottingham of 1958 um which is basically white white racists kind of marauding and and attacking people in their homes and in the streets um with you know with an element of um of of fight back um and you have something similar in 2001 where you have the kind of what's known as the northern town riots where people in majority muslim asian communities in places like oldham and burnley and leeds and bradford um are attacked by you know like kind of organized far right and then and then police as well and then you have a much more concerted um pushback by those communities um and then you also have the kind of the multiracial rebellions of um, the, the kind of litter, the, the 80s, 90s, and, and then 20, 2011 as well, uh, which are kind of, you know, largely black-led, but are kind of considerably multiracial. And in after all of these forms of uprising, the British state, will always appoint some kind of sir or lord to kind of preside over some kind of inquiry or whatever. And then they'll kind of give forth years later about how this is because of the failings of some kind of racial group or their parenting skills or whatnot. And then maybe the police might get like a mild slap on the wrist or for for their individual prejudices or whatever. But, you know, in in 2020-21, you have Tony Sewell, who um, is a, you know, who, who in, you know, instead of a kind of Scarman or, or a McPherson, you have a Tony Sewell who's who's black and um, and probably even more reactionary than Scarman. Um, and you have, you know, Badenoch and Patel, who are kind of delivering some of the these kind of biggest sort of racist kind of state attacks on immigrants and protesters. But what's what's taking place isn't that novel. Like the left struggles from below, problem subjects, these are these are continuing to be repressed, continuing to be managed by the state who's continually able to recruit sections of those populations in the policing of other um, sort of racialized and exploited people. Um, so, you know, we, we, we find, we find a, a significant amount of, of continuity into, in how the kind of the British state man- tries to manage these upsurges. There's something also about... Um like a national frame that's so reductive and like obviously it's meant to be reductive as well in that if you could see everything every kind of uh if your argument stops at the borders of of britain then you can start to justify these things like oh um immigrants came in we gave them a job we housed them we were so 
been a beneficial to these people and now they're ungrateful their children are ungrateful their grandchildren are ungrateful in a similar way like oh the nhs was founded and it looks after our great people without understanding where a lot of that wealth that funded the nhs came from for example and this kind of deliberate omission of any kind of international or global frame is something that's you know i've really become quite hypersensitive to when when seeing these things happen I think that's been key, hasn't it, um, <clears throat> to our decision, really, is that um, it didn't, not even to make it like um, comparativist between nations as well, to actually show movements of people, to show like dialogues, you know, like when we look at black feminism in chapter two and three, it's UK and US, but there's dialogues there, you know, and there's, you know, militant kind of black women and black led groups, but women who are looking at these situations in their own racial regime you know the british racial regime has a specific context as the us one does um but also there's this relationship between the two you know and i think that it's keeping that kind of in check all the time so i agree i think any kind of politics one of the kind of uh, arguments when we make at the start of the book really any kind of politics that becomes incorporated within the state whether it's environmentalism you know anti-racism that it will have a very limited context and it will end up kind of applying itself to um to an electorate over the heads of like where you know kind of a lot of these antagonisms exist so it's definitely you know part of the decision really is to kind of make this internationalist even if our focus is on two countries to show kind of like the global histories of these kind of uh of these struggles in these two countries you brought up black feminist thought and it is a it's kind of a rote thing to say about identity politics that oh actually um, do you know it started in black feminist movements in the 1970s and, uh, you know, Combahee River Collective and blah, 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 all this stuff. Um, not to say blah, 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 those people, but to blah, 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 that kind of rote trotting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but I think the, um, I mean, you, you talk about this in the book and that their use of identity politics or their use of identity as a frame of analysis and a, as a kind of, um, as a way of thinking, it differs a lot from, it's not this kind of, or oh, identity politics means different interest groups need to be represented and this kind of thing. Could you please just state very clearly how they used um, identity? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like you said, the, the identity politics as a term was coined by the, the Kambahi River Collective, who were a sort of African-American collective of um, black feminists based in Boston. Um, but I think... What, what we try to show in the book and what they what what they acknowledge as a group uh, just even in the name naming of their group which is named after a um, a civil war um, raid to to liberate slaves led by Harriet Tubman um, is that black feminist black feminism is as a tradition of of thought and and organizing is one that's very um, you know, connected to and interested in history, um, in in the struggles of of black women in the past, but also in history more more generally. It's a it's a tradition which which thinks historically, um, and so the, the concept of identity politics is something that was drawing on 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 a longer tradition of organising and writing by black women. Um, in America, but also in Britain and elsewhere, 
um, and it kind of it kind of sees like black women speaking and writing and organizing and critiquing others um, from the point of view of their own particular positioning within racial and gender divisions of labor. Um, so trying to kind of advance um, a kind of multiplicity of historical realities, um, trying to um, inject a sense that different subject perspectives matter, not just because of the individual, but because we are all subjectified in different ways. And that depends on things like power, history, colonialism, patriarchy. Um, and so we trace some of these kinds of movements and individuals that are, who are cru crucial to black feminist thought. So we, we focus a lot on people like Claudia Jones and Angela Davis and Hazel Carby, the authors of The Heart of the Race. Um, and how their kind of experiences within the societies that they lived in and within struggles they're involved in over suffrage, over, you know, involved in black power, in anti-imperialist movements or within the Communist Party like um, Claudia Jones uh, and how sort of different black women and black feminists developed these ways of thinking about difference and division and revolution that these things were thought of together that they weren't based on assumed revolutionary subjects um, that were um, so I guess they were they were a sort of important critique of the kind of industrial worker kind of assumption of of so much of kind of left left history and left left kind of um theorizing um and so yeah i think what we find is that the, the kind of very varied tra traditions of black feminism are kind of broadly we find them broadly kind of recognizing the problem of identity as being a problem of solidarity um, and so, so we look at these kind of we we use what we learn from from this kind of range of black feminists um, and their ex, their own explorations into into why movements were divided into trying to advance this kind of more. Um, this more kind of, I mean, I think that in, in, in a lot of ways, the book began as a kind of discourse analysis of how people um, misuse or, or kind of make, make pejorative the term identity politics and why they do that and how that works. And we found, and we kind of, we were building on that with this kind of historical basis. And I think in so sometimes during the writing of the book, me and Alex were kind of having this back and forth about, well, are we, aff are we affirming identity politics? Are we saying identity politics is a good thing? Because I think a lot of the time we're, what we're saying is that 
identity, po- the meaning of the term identity politics is, has been so ruined by all, the, all these kind of multiple traditions of, 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 of kind of slagging it off that, you know, we were trying to not say this is the kind of all-encompassing thing, solution to, to, to organising and all of our problems, um, but we wanted to salvage aspects of its, like, originary thought, which are still very relevant and very um, valuable for thinking about movement composition and class composition, how we organise, how we've been differentiated from each other, like working through all these things that have posed problems to all of our movements. I think, yeah, I mean, not much to add to that, really. I think that um, it definitely, I think working through that, like Mike was saying, and really thinking about what we're doing with those histories and those debates, but then expanding them across UK and US, looking at these different vantage points in, in two different racial regimes, that did become quite important to the historical kind of methodology in the book which was to center um, subject positions in these different historical situations. Like we follow chapter three, um, where we look at kind of UK histories of black feminism. And then we move to chapter four, where we look at the Aliens Act and we look at the racialization of Jewish workers. And, you know, it's kind of ironic to kind of read these histories back that it was the Jewish workers themselves that gave the most systematic kind of analysis of capitalism you know because they were like well we're not even being recognized as workers here by by well, your potential comrades why is that because you're kind of because their potential comrades that weren't were kind of you know formalizing a kind of plan for you know a plan for a kind of abstract identity of the worker uh, which would be nationally and racially kind of homogenized and they weren't part of that but that wasn't a plan to fight capital and a lot of these jewish workers or the state were very aware of that through their kind of alienation from these kind of main, um, uh, both, well, both the British state, but also the main centres and tenants of the, the British left. So, you know, we, I think those chapters do that work really of saying, well, you know, it's really easy today to become incredibly exhausted or fatigued around the trivialization of these terms or the trivialization of like personal experience, for example, that, you know, in my personal experience, like, yeah, well, everyone says that. Everyone in the news is introduced with that. It kind of gets tired out. But we're talking about a militant political tradition where personal, I mean, how could you form a politics about personal experience? It's, it's impossible. You know, you can need kind of empirical vantage points on like what's happening, you know, and uh, you really get that in kind of black feminist writing where it's like, yeah, we just looked at what's happening. What's happening? You know, what's the state doing? What's that? And that was figured that way. It wasn't kind of, oh, well, we've got a big, broad analysis of, of how capital works globally and, you know, there's workers and there's, there's, you know, there's capitalists and there's that. There's a lot more to be kind of, like, found by getting it. Yeah, it's draw your diagram, you know. I don't think you're kind of like, you know, it's this kind of, well, from my perspective, you know, these things are happening. I think these are worth inquiring about. It's like, well, I don't know how that fits in, really. We've got this kind of formal plan of what capital does or supposed to do. Well, you know, we're, we're like, well, no, you know, like personal experience, experiences, inactions, any kind of organizing experience are so fundamentally important now, especially as the left kind of like rears or relies on 
media figureheads, broad appeal campaigns, things that get abstracted from, um, you know, kind of how different straws are composed, how different areas, you know, kind of environments, geographies, how they're different, how things are received differently. So um, I think that was it really, is to kind of, you know, take these examples, take these theoretical and kind of historical methodologies and, and like, be imminent to those and kind of work with those in his different historical situations. One thing I really took from the one thing that struck me um, was when you were talking about how oftentimes these particular struggles against, for example, patriarchy or against white supremacy, they're taken as themselves and not they're not seen as being applicable to the wider struggle. Like this, how does this help the rest of the class? Assume it, you know, the rest of the working class. These, how can this help? You know this class struggle really and there are basically people um some on the left kind of think there's no lessons here for us there's nothing applicable this is a this is a black issue this is a trans issue this is a women's issue only and i mean that's something we need to like refuse every opportunity um yeah anyway yeah i mean if if you look at like claudia jones claudia jones's writings in the the 40s and 50s you know she's not saying um black women are the most exploited subjects in america and therefore they need your sympathy or your pity or um to be a special case which is often what people accuse identity politics of being of being for people who who want to be a special case or want special privileges she's saying look you know this is a this is a class fraction which is completely ignored by all traditions on the left and this is an untapped revolutionary subject that that black women are yes are super exploited but are a a kind of yeah like an untapped force for social change okay so in the final passages of the talk you talk about um the unpredictability of unpredictability of upsurges uh, but of course, the predictability of reaction, and it it seems to me that in this time of kind of ever escalating crises, be that economic, environmental, you know, we've got the cost of living crisis coming down. Well, we're in the cost of living crisis now, right now. Um, it feels like these upsurges and their inevitable reactions are going to get more and more frequent, or more and more intense, and the reactions are going to get increasingly vicious. And something we've commented on, and you kind of talk about in the book, is the breakdown between the walls between fascism, the far right, and conventional right-wing politics. And these things are starting to meld together. And, and then obviously in identity politics and these other kind of terms like workness, you see it almost as a means of coalescing these forces together as well. So if we're trying to build movements that are adequate for the times we're facing, which, you know, are extremely desperate and are going to last for the rest of our all our lives you know um how do we kind of um i suppose one kind of immunize our movements against the kind of reactionary leftism that we've talked about briefly how do we make sure that these kind of forces 
uh, don't have a purchase within our organising? And how do we, um, I suppose, meet the challenges of this reaction when it comes, uh, knowing that it's inevitably going to come? Yeah, I mean, it is unpredictable. Uh, it's a difficult question to answer at the moment, isn't it, in a way? <laughs> it's like, uh, I think, yeah. Um, yeah. It's not, I don't know. I don't know. No, it's I good. Don't... I know, but I'd like to explore it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, that I think it is good just to kind of be open. First of all, it's unpredictable. Um, we're not sure how things are going to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like what we've seen in, you know, struggles in the last, say, five, six years, very ambivalent. Um, ideological character, lots of struggles. You know, I really enjoyed the episode you did on the Dutch farmers recently uh, with Kai Harren and is it Alex Heffron? Um, I thought that was really strong, more of that, you know, more people with um, kind of an anchor on the kind of peculiarities uh, of these um, struggles, which seem insurrectionary in there, and they are, they've got insurrectionary elements, but have lots of this kind of right-wing ideology kind of as a, a fermenting within them, and then parties trying to kind of latch onto that. Also not like collapsing diff the qualities of different struggles, you know, like think after Gilles kind of... Um, you know, the massive events of Jojon and its kind of longevity, you know, relative longevity for what it was and its ideological ambivalence. There's an idea that, wow, you know, uh, I don't know that uh, because any any movement ideological am ambivalence then has potential. Well, no, you know, Jojon was a very specific movement and a lot of people were radicalized against the police in the uh, from, from being practically attacked by them, you know, and kind of the politics changed, you know, the reports you got from those movements were that um, ideological shifted and also parties were kind of completely renounced. So there's all very different kind of peculiar character to that movement, which isn't say in the Dutch farmers movement or, you know, that's got a different character in itself. And so I think one for our movements is being like really open to the different quality of struggles, not trying to kind of take, I think we say like a little metaphor in the book is to take the same kind of, jug to the well you know like just this is it you know this is how the well kind of fills up you know it's like no um don't be arrogant you know kind of go in be empirical just kind of look at what's happening um kind of be aware about these different things and you know i think you know there's from being around movements or in movements ourselves but also learning from people you know really exceptional organizers as well because they are out there and we've kind of you know i've been lucky enough and, and mike to to be proximate to people who've been really in the depth of casework and stuff it's very uh it's kind of detailed stuff you know you've got to kind of like look for that join up with people and kind of learn as well you know be ready to learn even if you come with your own experiences that's my feeling about it um um you know i think i get frustrated sometimes because i feel that you know, that kind of orthodox rejection of spontaneity uh, is kind of still quite current. I think that because we've got a trades, trade union opposition, which is fantastic and really hopeful, uh, that there's kind of more and more strikes. And I hope from a greater coordination of those strikes, um, there's an idea that, you know, finally we got the right road or the right way and that, you know, the spontaneity of these early movements worked. But actually, a lot of the electoral movements of the last decade have been completely geared and reacting to chance, chance events, chance potential leaders that can come through, you know, very spontaneous. And we're getting national campaigns now that are coming on the back of the strikes. And, you know, we should explore those and criticize them. You know, if they need, 
you know, if they need to be criticized, because, you know, for me, in speaking in the UK now, it's the strikes really that the political, I've got strong political expression. I think we should be wary when national campaigns start kind of jumping out. And those within those national campaigns, there's people like, I don't know, like Andy Burnham, you know, making leadership charges. Like, you know, you know, Mr. Kind of like, kind of on the fence, but with austerity, you know, like, you know, kind of re-imaged himself. And now he's re-imaging himself a second time, you know, of a, in a crisis that's kind of directly extends from when kind of he was in formal opposition. So I worry about that. I think that we should be wary of it and uh, not, uh, and... I don't know who I'm speaking to here, but yeah, be wary of like a failed strategy of building movements around media figureheads or kind of any figurehead. That's my feel about it is that, you know, we should, it is a kind of sectarian discourse that goes on really. Um, a kind of beating down, I think we talk about, you know, Mike interviewing this point in the conclusion. It's all about massification. You lose something if you become hyper-focused on that. Um, you, you lose something that's concrete about what's going on. And uh, I'd like to see more and more folks on the left on like finding a way to kind of broaden and share the kind of different qualities of things and like the different struggles that are happening. I know that can be difficult, especially in anarchist work, because it's very important to actually keep distance from visibility um, uh, because of surveillance in the state, etc. Some struggles have that. But I mean, you know, that's my feeling and, and just stay reflective, stay reflective and thoughtful. Cause I think that we're getting pulled in constantly to these dividing lines and they feel very reactive, you know, like they're, they're reacting in really unthoughtful ways. Yeah. Um, look, I think, I think obviously things are going to get worse. Um, I think, I think that there's going to be, uprisings um i think that's inevitable not for some moral reason but because that's that has been a consistent feature of of our society and of of the political economy that we live under for the last several decades um and i would like to see forms of solidarity and diversity of tactics you know that that there is there is a constancy to so many different forms of struggle and organizing in this society which gets you know no very little media very little love but the people who organize uh, against evictions against landlords people who organize against deaths in custody people who organize against immigration detention these are these are organizers these are forms of self-organized struggle which have which are constantly um involved in amazing work um that so many others can learn from um you know uprisings are, are not the same as revolution um you know they 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 come and go and there's and there's a backlash every time but i would i would like to see the the kinds of strong bonds and strong movements across the kind of divisions that we're talking about which mean that when 
when these uprisings happen that people can see the struggles of people against police against property as being their struggle too and not seeing it as like oh this is you know like all left politicians or trade union leaders saying this is just criminality this is just you know i would like to, i'd like to see that and i and i'm really excited by the kind of huge growth of of immigration raid resistance and by the growth of cop watch organizing and also the growth of you know theoretical production around um, abolitionist thought and trying to transpose that to UK context. So like the, the, the new book by Gracie May Bradley and Luke Dinaronia and the upcoming book by Avia Saraday and Shanice McBean, which I'm really excited about. Great. Um, this is, we're going to get out of here because we've recording for like an hour and 25 minutes. But this has been a really productive conversation. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, the book is called Fractured, Class, Gender and the Hatred of Identity Politics. It's coming out on the 23rd of September, right? Class, Race, Gender. Class, Race, Gender and the Hatred of Identity Politics. <laughs> um, you can pre-order from Pluto Press and you should do it because I thoroughly recommend the book and might do a reading group on it if people fancy it. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank, thanks, Alex. Thanks for writing us on. No worries. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Join us for KiteLine, a weekly radio program on Channel Zero Network that focuses on issues in the prison system. With over 50 episodes already released, you can hear informative and riveting stories about the impact of prisons on people both inside and outside of the prison walls and how they fight back. KiteLine is intended as means of communication between people across prison walls. Our goal at KiteLine is to amplify the voices of those within the prison system while encouraging dialogue with those on the outside. Hear us on the Channel Zero network and visit our website for more information or previous episodes at kitelineradio.noblogs.org.